Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website ericlevy.com under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you Chapter Five of the Book of Daniel. This chapter focuses on the fall of the Babylonian Empire and its last king, Belshazzar, not to be confused with Daniel's Babylonian's names, Belteshazzar with a tent. Historically, Nabonides was the last king of Babylonia, and he was overthrown by Cyrus the Great in 539 BCE. However, for ten years of his rule, Nabonides absented himself from uh, from the capital and put Belshazzar, or Balthazar, in charge. There is no reliable history of what happened to Balthazar, though in our chapter he is killed apparently in a palace coup. Uh, given that we are talking about the end of an empire, the whole setting of this chapter with a hedonistic party, drinking and revelry seems very strange. We do have a case of Nero fiddling when Rome burned, uh, and that may be something of what's going on here, but I think that there is a little bit more going on here. Remember that the Tanakh is not written to be just a history, a simple history, but it's supposed to educate and explain about how God feels about um, and how he interacts with uh, the Israelite history, the course of Israelite history, as well as world history. A colleague of mine, Rabbi Yirmiyahu Lukin, said it to me very well. He said, the work of the prophets is to Jewish history what the op-ed page is to the front page news. That is, Tanakh is not the news. It's criticism, commentary, education, explanation, um, but it's not the news itself. Now, this idea of being ahistorical or non-historical is taken to the extreme in rabbinic midrash, uh, where history is actually toyed with to make a point. For instance, sometimes you have midrashim where protagonists of different generations interact, where people who can never have met have conversations. And, and that's because the point of midrashim is not to tell history, it's to teach religion and morality, and it's to explain what's going on between the lines of biblical text. So Tanakh does relate history, there's no doubt about it, but it does so through a religious prism of its authors inspired by God. In this chapter, the authors are Anshe Knesset HaGadola, and they're living in the troubled times of the Second Temple, when Israel almost continuously was subjugated in one way or another. Very rarely was there autonomy. They were either under the thumb of the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, Alexander, and the, and the you know the, the Greek Empire. So I believe that the authors are using this chapter to show the reason, the cause of the putrefaction and disintegration of the Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar, there's no doubt, was a vicious tyrant. But he wasn't steeped in base hedonism, in sex, and drinking, and the pursuit of physical pleasures, as we see here, is done so by Balthazar. Um, we see in this chapter also Persian influence on the Babylonian Empire. And no doubt, the Anshe Knesset Agdola were motivated by what they remembered of the Persian uh, uh, hedonism, as well as uh, the Hellenistic focus on the body, to explain why the Babylonian Empire rotted from within. So perhaps the last king was actually... Um, that is, it's very possible that Balthazar actually was throwing a party as his empire crumbled. He was fiddling as uh, as uh, Rome, or in this case, as Babylon burned. But that's not really the point. The point is to describe why Bavel crashes upon itself as a lesson for the future of the Jewish people. Belshazzar Malka Avad Lacham Rav Lirav Riva Nohi Aleph 
ulekabel alfa chamrashate. Balthazar the king made a great feast for 1,000 of his officers and drank before the 1,000. This fact, along with others in this chapter, reminds us of the parties that opened up the book of Esther. But here, the king is drinking openly and loudishly before his entire, the entire 1,000 audience, showing, uh, essentially, the author is showing how low Balthazar is. He is essentially the party clown. Belshazzar Amar bit aim chamra lahayataya lemane dahava vachaspa di hanpeik nucha netzar avohi min hechala di viu shalayim vi ishton bahon malka verav ravanohi sheglate ulchenate. Under the influence of wine, and this is a really cool thing that uh, that the authors of of the Sefer Daniel are doing. Note that they use the word ta'im, which means a command. And up to now, all ta'ims, all commands, have come from Nebuchadnezzar and one time from Daniel. Uh, here, it's not the king commanding, but the wine commands the king. You can almost sense the sneer of contempt that the authors have uh, uh, as they write this. Under the influence of wine, getting back to the verse, Balthazar uh, ordered to bring the gold and silver vessels that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had removed from the palace in Jerusalem, and that the king and his officers and his wives and his concubines should drink from them. Must have been quite a party. A uh, few things to mention here. First, everyone gets upset because historically Nebuchadnezzar was not Balthazar's father. However, in Tanakh, uh, nobody should be getting upset about this, because in Tanakh, generations are very often skipped, especially when one is trying to make a comparison to a previous king. For instance, the greatest of the Judean kings were referred to as being David's children, even the, when they were not. If, for instance, it says about King Hezekiah, Hezekiah, in 2 Kings chapter 18, some 300 years or 250 years after David uh, ruled, Vayas hayashar Hashem, he did that which was straight in the eyes of the Lord like all his father David had done. Clearly not his father, his predecessor. Another example is Rubavel ben Shaltiel um, is known, of course, as the son of Shaltiel. However, if you look in the book of Chronicles, you'll find out that he was actually the son of Pediah, who in turn was the son of Shaltiel. Um, in addition, uh, we have documentation from the Assyrians that northern kingdom of Israel was known as Omri land, and certain kings were known as the sons of Omri, even though they weren't actually the sons of Omri. Um, so here, what we have is not so much our author comparing Balthazar to Nebuchadnezzar, but what he's doing by making him his quote-unquote son, so to speak, um, he's contrasting Balthazar against Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and whatever you want to say about the tyrant Nebuchadnezzar, one thing is, as I said before, he did not debase himself in sex and drink and parties. Um, the author is, is making sure we understand why the Babylonian Empire came to an end. The author will also explain that religious degradation comes hand in hand with hedonistic degradation. Again, say what you want about the polytheist Nebuchadnezzar. He recognized the power of other religions' gods. He was respectful to them, especially when they came through, at least according to our book. Um, we didn't see him mocking other religions or abusing the religious paraphernalia. He may have been forcing people to worship his god, but he wasn't insulting people about uh, about their own gods. In contrast, Belthazar here profanes God in the process of debasing himself with drink and hedonism. One thousand people squished into the palace along with all the wives and all the concubines and all the liquor flowing. Uh, as I said, it must have been quite the rave. 
בידיין הייטיב מעני דהבה דהנפיקו מן היכלה דבית אלוה דבירושלים ואישתיב בהון מלכה ורב רבנוהי שגלתי ולכנתי. Then they brought the vessels of gold probably the silver vessels as well, although for some reason the verse only mentions the gold ones, that were taken out of the palace of the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his officers and his wives and his concubines drank from them. The king is clearly making a point here. This is not just a case that he ran out of clean goblets, so he needed to go get some free ones. Um, also, that is, he's making a point about the subjugation of the Judean people and the... Uh, prof- uh, a profane point against the God of the Jews. Also, you're probably thinking that you've seen this in the book of Esther, people drinking out of the vessels of the Holy Temple. However, keep in mind that in Esther, the drinking of the Temple's vessels is midrashic. It's not what it says in the text. The text only says that they drank from out of golden utensils and all kinds of uh, different utensils. It is the rabbinic sages who wrote the midrash who said that it was the utensils that Achash Veros took from the temple. And of course, as I mentioned above, the rabbinic sages are not usually trying to be historical, and, and it doesn't seem that that's a historical statement at all. They're familiar with our book, and they know that our book, Daniel, opens up with the Babylonians taking some of the utensils, and the Book of the Kings has the Babylonians, not the Persian Medians, taking spoils from the temple. Now, it's true, Cyrus returned some of them, so maybe it's possible uh, that they were swiped again by Achashverosh. But I think what the rabbis are actually trying to do is to parallel these two stories. Uh, they're trying to create a parallel that does not exactly exist in the text between the party of Achashverosh and the party that we are uh, witnessing here, which actually does say they drank out of uh, God's utensils, so to speak. Um, first of all, they're trying to say that this party is clearly influenced by Persian hedonism and Persian policy. Um, uh, but as I mentioned in chapter 3, when it was talking about the uh, the, uh, the great golden statue that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had erected, um, the Jews of Shushan, by drinking at that party, it was as if they were rejecting their religion in favor of per- a Persian culture. And as such, the rabbis of the Talmud wanted to uh, make sure that they that we understood that they were complicit in the events that transpired in the book of Esther because they dared to do what Balthazar had done, which cost him, well, here, cost him his life. I hope I haven't ruined the story for anybody. Yishtiv chamra v'shabachu le'ilahei dahava v'chasba nechasha farzala a'a v'avna. They drank from the wine and they praised their gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Uh, with a switch between the tzadi and the ayin, which I've discussed before, the Hebrew word eitz tree becomes, or wood, becomes the Aramaic a'a with an ayin. Um, now, and I don't think that these materials are here to remind us of the great statue in chapter 1. Uh, first of all, there's no terracotta mentioned here as there was in the first statue. Um, essentially, these are simply the classic inanimate materials of idols, which, because of their inanimate nature, are the object of biblical scorn. So they're mentioned here, the full panoply of them. Um, of course, the... The authors know that Babylonians are idol worshippers, so you know it doesn't pay to point to an idol worshipper and say, "Oh my God, there's an idol worshipper." Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was listed as an idol worshipper, but somehow this worship, which is born of hedonism and debasement and drinking and revelry, somehow this form of worship transforms their idol worship into somehow an even lower and more despicable thing. 
And now in verse 5, the plot takes a turn. Bashata nifaka exba'an diyad enosh v'chatvan l'chabel nevrashta al-gira di chetali chala di malka u'malka chazei pas yada di at the same time, that is while they were drinking out of the utensils, a human finger came out and wrote to the light, in, in the light of the candelabra, on the plaster of the wall of the palace of the king, and the king saw a palm of the hand which was writing. It seems that only the king saw the hand, which apparently was a supernatural thing that took the form of a human finger. This is, of course, this verse and this whole story is, of course, the origin of the idiom, the writing on the wall. Now, in actual pla- palace intrigues, you get this kind of thing where people write coded conspiracies on walls. However, since we'll see that the script is apparently unreadable as well as incomprehensible, there seems to be something supernatural going on. Eben Ezra actually translates pasiad not as the palm of the hand, but a small strip of a hand, as in ketonet pasim, a stripped, striped coat or a coat made up of small strips. So perhaps uh, the pas was simply a description of the disembodied finger, which fits, therefore, the supernatural sense of the narrative. Edayin malka ziohi shinohi v'rayinohi v'halonei v'kitrei chartsei mishtairayin v'archubatei ida lida nakashan. Then, after the king saw the finger writing on the wall, his countenance changed, his thoughts became distressed, the bonds of his hips became freed, and his knees knocked together. The bonds of his hips being loosened seemed to mean that his legs gave out on him, but there's, uh, uh, but either way, the tone is uh, mocking and full of contempt. How often do you see somebody's knees knocking together in Tanakh? Kare Malka B'chayil, V'hala L'Ashpaya, Kazdayei, V'gazraya, Anei Malka V'amar L'chakimei, Bavel, Dichol Enosh, Di, Yikre, Chatava, Dina, Ufishrei, Yichavinani, Argivana, Yilbash, Vaham, Nichadi, Dahava, Al, Tsavarei, Vitalti, Bimalchuta, Yishlat. The king yelled out, or called out in a loud voice, to bring the necromancers, the Chaldeans, and the exorcists, or the spirit workers. I'm not sure what happened to the fourth group, which were the Khartoumim. Perhaps the fact that he has only three groups of soothsayers, uh, rather than four, as we've always had before, indicates a lessening of the Babylonian power, but maybe I'm reading too much into it. In any event, the king responded and said to these sages of Babylon that anyone who could read the writing and explain its meaning would wear purple, the color of royalty, and would wear a chain of gold on his neck, more signs of royalty, and would rule as third in the kingdom. Uh, I think there is contempt and criticism in this as well. That is, Nebuch- if we look at what Nebuchadnezzar did, if we contrast Nebuchadnezzar against Balthazar, so Nebuchadnezzar gave away riches and certainly was willing to elevate those who pleased him to positions of power. But he didn't give away the farm. He didn't make people the king. Um, the, the necklace and the purple are clearly signs of royalty, of persons wearing kingly garb, as if one could just give that away. Of course, if the farm isn't worth anything, as Babylon probably isn't because it's near to burning down, um, then it doesn't much matter who you sell it to because you're selling them nothing. It's not clear exactly what he means by Vitalti b'malchuta ishlat. It could mean that the person will rule over one-third of the kingdom, or it could be that he'll be the third in charge. Historically, that 
would be referring to Nabonidus, who is not in our story, but he was number one. He was the king. Balthazar was number two. And I guess whoever solves the writing is being offered number three. However, I think the author actually is sending us up to wonder why not number two. That is why third in the kingdom. It should be second, like in the Joseph story. And then in a few uh, verses, the author will hit us with an ironic surprise when we find out that the number one in the kingdom isn't really Balthazar, but it's the queen who really has control over all the whole situation, which I think is also a slight again. Uh, against the kingdom of Babylon, uh, no offense to modern feminism, as now women rule just fine, but back then it was probably considered uh, a negative thing that the king couldn't get his act together, so the, the queen told him what to do. Regarding the writing itself, it seems that not only the meaning of the writing, which is a, is a mystery, but the writing itself is unreadable. The rabbis in Talmud Sanhedrin offer some reasons why that would be so. They, the letters were scrambled into some kind of code. This is certainly possible since political messages of this type are often coded so that they can only be understood by the conspirators. Um, alternately, uh, alternatively, it may have been an unknown form of cuneiform, maybe more Persian in origin, and as we will see, the word Persia is in fact hinted at in the message. Uh, perhaps the writing is even Phoenician or Aramaic, both of which, uh, by the way, have no vowels. And therefore, um, if you don't know exactly what's being written about, sometimes it's very hard to know how to vocalize the words. Uh, try the word mitzvot in the Torah and matzot in the Torah. They're, they're both spelled the same, but boy, do they mean different things. Thereupon, all the sages, which means the soothsayers uh, of the king, came, and they were neither able to read nor to inform the king what it meant. And Dayan Malka Belshatsar Sagi Mit Bahel Viziyohi Shanin Alohi Viravra Nohi Mishtabishin. Then King Balthazar became really distressed and the splendor of his faith changed, I guess, even more. The word Ziv, I should have mentioned before, also means splendor, which is like a shine, a glow that comes off of uh, off of something, and it's like an like an animation and you know a certain liveliness. So in modern idioms, we might say he went uh, white or gray, or he, his face turned into a death mask or something like that. Uh, continue on with the verse, and his officers were all mishdabshim; they were all incoherent, uh, literally mixing things up, as we will see. We'll see what that means in a second. Malkata lekabel milai milai malka veravrevanohi levet mishdaya alat anat malkata veameret malkala almin chayi al yivhaluch vezivach al yishtano. So the queen apparently, and, and, and it's it's possible that this wasn't actually the queen, but it was the queen mother, who actually wielded a lot of power in the ancient Near East. That is, it was the king's mother would be in charge of the harem and therefore quite in control of which child would survive to the succession. Uh, but let's just call her the queen because the verse does. So the queen, because of of the words, meaning that the the. Ravravanim, the heads of government, these officers were essentially babbling incoherent uh, words and terrible suggestions. They were in a state of panic and confusion. Um, who, both the officers and the king. So she came to the banquet hall and responded and said, "May the king live forever. Don't let your thoughts be distressed, and don't let the splendor and don't let your splendor be altered." Uh, 
uh, I guess today we would say chill out a little bit. Itai givar b'malchutach di ruach elohim kadishin bey uviyomei avuch nahiru v'sachletahu v'chachma kechachmat elahina hishtakachat bey umalka nevuchad netzar avuch rav chartumin ashapin kazdain gazrin hakimei avuch malka. There is a man who has the holy, divine spirit in him, and in the days of your father, remember, not literally your father, but your primary predecessor, uh, in the days of your father, light, nahora, meaning knowledge and intelligence and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods was found in him, and your father, Nebuchadnezzar, established him as the head of the magicians and the Chaldeans and the exorcists, so did your father the king. That is, that's what your father, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, did. Notice this unnecessary and almost really awkward repeti- repetition of the words, Avuch Malcha, your father, the king. It shows up three times in this verse. Like, what's the point of this repetition? So I may be reading into it, but I think she's mocking him. Uh, sort of like saying, I knew Nebuchadnezzar, and you are no Nebuchadnezzar. Kol kabel di ruach Yatira umanda v'sachletahu mifashar chalmin v'achavayat achidan achidan umisharei kitrin hishdakachat bey. Because of this, because of his exceptional spirit and knowledge and intelligence, he can interpret dreams and solve riddles and untie knots. Uh, that's what she says, umisharei kitrin, which I think is another jab at the king, who, if you remember, just had the knots of his loins or his hips loosened. All this can be found with him. Now the Hebrew word, shachach means to, that is, we have the word here. In Hebrew, the word shachach means to forget. But in Aramaic, the same root remain, means nearly the opposite. It means to be found. So that's how I always remember it. It's almost the opposite of what it is in Hebrew. Anyway, the queen or the queen mother, uh, uh, who in Tanakh, by the way, is known as the Gvira, although here she's called the Malka, but one gets the sense that she might be the Queen Mother because she was aware of what Nebuchadnezzar had done for and the experience of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. So she continues, B'Daniel di Malka sim shemei belt shatzar, beltish shatzar, ke'an Daniel yitkarei ufishra yitchavei. The king said Daniel's name to Belshazzar, which I think is also a jab, because she goes back to calling him Daniel. In fact, the whole chapter Chapter calls him only Daniel. So why call him Beltachar here? Beltishatzar here? I think what she's saying is the name given by Nebuchadnezzar to this guy is equal to the name of the current king, which doesn't, which tells you what I think of the current king. Anyway, getting back to the verse. So now let Daniel read and explain its meaning, its interpretation. Uh, one gets the sense that Daniel has essentially been forgotten with the change of kings. Historically, he would have been an old man. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar ruled uh, from the year 605 BCE, uh, when where Daniel seems to be just a t- teenager, maybe a very young adult. At the end of Balthasar's regency, um, it was 65 years later, in the year 540 BCE, uh, when his father returned from the oasis called Tema in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, so that would put Daniel in his 70s or 80s, so one gets the sense that he is uh, retired and forgotten, which, of course, reminds one of the Joseph story a little bit, although here things work out a tad better than they did for the Joseph, in the, than in the uh, Joseph story. Beidayin Daniel hu al kadam malka anei malka va'amarle Daniel antu Daniel di min b'nei galuta di yehud di haiti malka avi min yehud. Then Daniel was brought brought in before the king and notice the passive hu'al was brought in 
not so much against his will, but I think as we'll see that Daniel doesn't seem to care one way or the other whether the king succeeds or not or whether the king's problems are resolved or not. The king responded and said to Daniel, getting back to the verse, Are you, Daniel, from the exile of the Judeans that my father, the king, brought from Judea? I have heard that you, that you have the divine spirit in you and knowledge, literally Nahora, the light, wisdom and intelligence is to be found in you. Now, what's interesting is he doesn't say Ruach Elohim Kaddish, he only says Ruach Elohim, he skips the word Kaddish or Holy. Um, does this mean that he doesn't think the divine spirit is holy and therefore it's another jab at his profanity? It's perhaps, it's perhaps, but I think I, I, you know, that may be reading it a bit too much. Sometimes words are, are simply left out. Uh, now, or behold, the sages and the sorcerers have been brought before me to read and tell me the interpretation, but they have not been able to explain the interpretation of the words. Again, note the passive they were brought in, who alu is used here. That's not the language that was used by Nebuchadnezzar, where, which was an active call for his sages. As if they too, like Daniel, couldn't care much for Balthazar the king, that he had to force them to do their jobs. Or perhaps it just contrasts the weakness of this king against Nebuchadnezzar's forcefulness. But I have heard about you that you are able to interpret interpretations to undo knots, uh, meaning uh, you know, to figure out codes and puzzles and to solve problems. Once again, I think this is the author taking a, jo- a jab at the king's unknotted loins. I mean, he can't even stand straight, apparently, because of his unknotted knots, and they keep on grinding in this uh, point about how uh, Daniel is able to uh, free up knots. So, so, getting back to the verse, so now, if you are able to read the writing and inform me of its meaning, you will wear purple, and you will have the chain of gold on your neck, and you will real, rule third in, or perhaps a third of the kingdom. Then Daniel responded and said before the king, Keep the gifts for yourself, and the spoils give to someone else. Nonetheless, I will read the writing and inform the king of its meaning, that is, its Interpretation. Now, I read some scorn in this by translating matnatach lach lehevyan, keep it, keep the gifts, you know, for yourself, like, you know, keep your own gifts, rather than a more neutral translation of the gifts are your own. But that's the way I see this exchange. He's simply saying, you know, I don't care what you want to offer me, I'm not interested. But I'm going to do it because I'm going to do it, not because you're promising me any money. Ant malka eloha iloha malchuta vruvuta vikara vahadre yahav nebuchadnezzar avuch. And the truth is, this is a better reason for him to do it, because he knows that God has sent this message, and therefore he feels it's his job to reveal what that is. Oh, you king, the most, that is, he's speaking to nebuchadnezzar, but now he switches and he says, the most high, meaning God, gave greatness and honor and glory to 
Nebuchadnezzar your father, that is not to you, to Nebuchadnezzar your father. Umin revuta diyahavle kolamamayu umayu vlishanaya havo zayina uvidachalin min kadamohi, diyahavat savei havi katil, vidiyahavit savei hava machei, vidiyahavat savei hava marim, vidiyahavat savei hava mashpil. And part of that greatness that he, God, gave to him is that all the nations and people and language groups would quake and fear before him, or in his presence, or from him. Whoever he, Nebuchadnezzar, wanted, he would kill. Whoever he wanted would live. Whomever he wanted, he would elevate. And whoever he wanted, he would lay low, bring low. Uchdi ram Tikfat lahazada honchat min korsei malchutei vikara hediv minei. But when his heart became haughty and his spirit became so strong as to be purposely wicked, lahazid, he was lowered from his throne and he was stripped of his honor. The word karsei is like the Hebrew kisei, but in the Hebrew the resh of karsei is assimilated into the samach, which is why there's a dagesh chazak in it. In Arabic, asit is uh, kind of the same word, it's kursi. Um, this all, of course, refers to the events of the previous chapter, what happened when he was sent out uh, to the animals, as Daniel will now recall. So, he was cast out from mankind, and his mind was set to be in animals, and he dwelled among donkeys, which is new, we weren't told that in the previous chapter, and he tasted vegetation, that is, he grazed like the oxen, and he quenched himself from the rains, until he understood that the Most High God controls the kingship of man, and that he, God, appoints whomsoever he wants. V'ant birei belshatsar lo hashpelt livavach kol kabil di dina yadata. And you, his son, or as I said, his successor, his the one who comes after him in the chain of command, you did not humble your heart, even though you knew all this. That is, you knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he at least he had the excuse of of being the first guy on the chain, so not realizing that you could become too haughty. But you knew what would happen. You knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, and you didn't take it uh, to heart. You exalted yourself over the master of the heavens. You had the vessels of his house brought before you, and you and your officers and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. And you praised gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor have any awareness. But to the God who has your life force in his hand, and to whom belongs everything that happens to you, you did not honor. So, from his presence, he sent out a palm, or a part of a hand, and he inscribed these words, And these are the words that are inscribed, 
ufarsin. Menei, menei, tekel, and farsin. Now, before we get to Daniel's interpretation of these mysterious words, let's look at the words themselves and see what they mean. At first glance, interestingly enough, they are simply coins. A mina, a menei, is a silver coin, an expensive one weighing about 450 grams. A tekal seems to be the Aramaic form of a shekel, tough and shin interchange, um, and that's a much cheaper silver coin. It weighs about 14 grams. A pras at the end might be a pruta, but that doesn't seem likely since the Aramaic samach doesn't become the Hebrew tat. What it may more likely mean is a half a shekel. That is a minei, very expensive, then a shekel, and then a paras, which means a, a half a shekel, since in Aramaic, paras means to cut into two. So, since the first word mene is also a command form of to count, then the simple surface level meaning of this phrase is count a mina, a shekel, and then half of that. And this may be a political statement um, that that says the following. We started with a valuable king, a king worth like what gold is worth. Then we got a cheaper silver king. Remember, the second king of the statue of the first chapter was made of silver. And now all we have is a half of silver shekel, or what we might call a copper king or a bronze king. The word paras, of course, also hints at paras or, or, or paras hints at Persia, meaning maybe Persia is coming soon to do some of the chopping that we're just speaking about. So the beautiful thing about this message is that it's actually ominous on multiple levels. On a very simple level, it's essentially saying our king is worth nothing. We used to be rich, and then we were half that rich, and now we're so poor that we don't even have a full coin. Let's see how Daniel reveals the meaning behind these words, the deeper meaning of these words. Dina Peshar Milta Menei this is the meaning, the interpretation of the words. Mene means God has counted out, he has mana, your kingdom, and hashlama, he has completed it, he's finished it with it. The meaning is as follows. God gave the Babylonians, the Babylonian Empire, a certain amount of days, and Daniel is probably referring to the Jeremiah's 70 years of promise, which Daniel himself will take a, talk about later directly in the book. That he'll talk about it directly later in the book. And he's saying now it's Hoshlam, it's completely finished. Daniel only mentions one mene, although there are two menes written on the wall, so it seems to me that the second one indicates that the count is over. He started the mene, and now he's finished with the mene. Tikal, you have been weighed to kale in scales and you have been found incomplete, which is like a stone which is used for weighing out metals, which a, a, a dishonest uh, uh, a salesman will will uh, have the stone be less than its full weight and it's used to cheat the purchaser. Piras, Pires, Pires, Prisat, Malchutach, Vihivat, Lemadai, Ufaras. Your kingdom will be divided up and be given to Media and Persia. Historically, Media was really swallowed up into the Persian Empire under the command of uh, the Persian or actually the Archimedian uh, Cyrus the Great. But the empires were very much intertwined. So while it was a Persian Empire, not really a Median Empire, 
um, they're really from a Jewish biblical perspective, they were really a combined a combined empire. Cyrus, in fact, conquered the Median Empire from his grandfather, um, who I believe it's pronounced Estiages uh, or Astiages. So, from again, from a Jewish biblical perspective, it was seen as as a combined Persian Median Empire. Now, you would think that Balthazar would get pretty upset about hearing this terrible news. In the previous chapter, the younger Daniel was worried that the message of the, the you know the meaning of the vision of the tree would cost him his life when he told it to Nebuchadnezzar. So he got very nervous uh, with some assurance from Nebuchadnezzar, so he finally told him, but he was clearly quite nervous, as he should be. Here, Daniel apparently couldn't care less what the king thinks. Now, I don't think it's because Daniel is old and doesn't feel there's anything to lose, but I think he simply has no respect for Balthazar whatsoever, and Balthazar apparently has no respect for himself, which shouldn't surprise us at this point. Then Balthazar commanded, and they dressed up Daniel in purple and put a golden chain on his neck and proclaimed that he was third or had a third of the empire for all it was worth. Because Bebalayla Katil Belshazzar Malka Kazdaya. That very night Balthazar, king of the Chaldeans, was killed. As I said, we don't have information of what happened to Balthazar, so <clears throat> this may have been at the end of the entire empire, or it may be at this point that Nabonides, who was known to the Jews, by the way, I mean the Jews were aware of the fact that Nabonides was a uh was an emperor was a king of the Babylonian Empire because there's a story written about him that we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But it could be that at this point he took back his power after Balthazar was killed for a very short while until the end really did come by the hands of uh, Cyrus. Uh, the next king mentioned in chapter 6-1 is Darius the Mede, so we've moved on to a new empire. Unfortunately, we can't identify exactly who he is. And his age is 62, which matches the age of Cyrus when he conquered Babylon. But Cyrus was not a Mede, he was, he was an Achaemenian. Um, a Persian, essentially. Um, as I mentioned, Tanakh is the op-ed pages, and it assumes that we know what's going on on the front page of the newspaper. Unfortunately, we're so far removed from that history that it's sometimes very hard to reconstruct. In any event, the moral messages of the chapter are very clearly stated. Descents into pursuits of flesh, a king with no self-respect, a fool, um, he and his chief so inane that the queen mother must step in to restore order, uh, palace plots afoot, a uh, person who's uh, fiddling while his uh, while the Persians are knack- knocking at his door, uh, all the while amusing himself and reveling in the debasement of other religions, uh, in and in his head in the sand, resorting to crude paganism. Essentially, God has had enough. This empire does not deserve to maintain whatsoever. It doesn't maintain. The irony is for us, the reader, is that the empire of Babylonia, the empire of Bavel. It looms very large for us in Jewish history because they're the ones who destroyed the first temple and they're the ones who destroyed the first commonwealth and sent us all into exile. But the empire of Babylon, of Bavel, lasted only a lousy 70 years. I mean, compare that to the hundreds of years of the Assyrians, the Persians, to some of the Egyptian dynasties. The Babylonians were essentially a nasty, short-lived empire and it's probably our great shame that they were the ones who managed to take us down.